guys this morning. As Jason mentioned earlier, thanks for braving the storm and coming out. And not just the storm, but the final round of the Masters getting moved up on tee times. For anybody who cares, Tigers won back after three holes, so you now have been updated. We can dive into the scriptures and focus ourselves this morning. If you're new, if this is your first Sunday with us, uh, and you're wondering, where are we in the Bible? Where are we going this morning? Well, we began a series back in August of last year, uh, working our way through the book of Acts. And we are about three quarters of the way through this series Uh, We will finish this up at the end of May, this walk through all 28 chapters of the book of Acts, every single verse. It's the story of the the early New Testament church. Uh, If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, the story of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. It's the story of Jesus fulfilling his promise to build his church with the gates of hell powerless to stop it. It's ultimately the story of a bunch of ordinary people, as I've said from week one of this series, empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God, turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. And this morning, it's undeniably Jesus who will get the glory as we continue to follow the the transpiring events in the life of the apostle Paul, events that ultimately reveal to us that Jesus is the greater Paul. He's the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one worthy of praise. And thus it makes sense to come in and do what we're doing this morning, which is to worship him. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 21. That's where we'll be this morning, first 36 verses. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath uh, one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. You can take that Bible with you if you come in this morning and you don't own a Bible or maybe the translation that you have in your possession is a little difficult to track with. Please take that Bible with you as our gift to you. Let me pray and and we'll dive in and and we'll get going this morning. God, as we prayed even before this service, you are sovereign over all things. You're the God who commanded a storm to be still and it obeyed. You're the God who hurled a hurricane at your son Jonah in order to draw him to yourself in the midst of his disobedience. And that means that you are the same God who is sovereign over and in control of the calm moments and seasons of our lives as well as those seasons, those moments that feel like a raging storm. And Romans chapter eight tells us that for those of us who love you, you work all things for good. And that means that the seasons of calm, you are working for our good. In the seasons that feel like a raging storm, you are also working for our good. And so I pray that that weather on the other side of these walls reminds us of that, even on this day, that you are always working for the good of those who love you. God, I pray in this moment as we dive into Acts chapter 21, that Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see the wonder of the glory of Jesus Christ this morning, that you would open our ears to to hear the, the beautiful truth found in Acts chapter 21, that you would stir and work in our hearts to receive that which you have for us this morning, so that as we walk out of this place and we step back out into that rainstorm, that we're reminded all the more and encouraged by the fact that our very worldview, the Christian worldview, stands and rests on the shoulders of one giant and his name is Jesus Christ. And may we be encouraged and hopeful as we leave with that reminder this morning. It's in his name I pray, amen. So picking up where we 
left off last week. If you were here last week, Paul, we've just seen him give his charge to the Ephesian elders uh, in Miletus, just outside of, of Ephesus, a group of soldiers covered in dirt and blood, you might say, huddling with their honorable general for, for some parting wisdom, a gathering that if you go back to the end of Acts chapter 20, we see uh, that huddle end in tears because Paul tells his friends that they'll never see him again that he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen there, only knowing that the Spirit has testified to him that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await him. As we pick up the story in verse one of chapter 21, it says, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Just to give you a, a visual of what's happening in these verses, I've attempted to do this from time to time over the course of the last several chapters of, of the book of Acts as we've studied, bringing up maps on the screen to kind of tie all this in and, and give it a visual element. If you look up in the southwest corner of that that red region of Asia, you'll see Miletus, which is where Paul's address to the Ephesian elders took place. These first three verses of chapter 21 nearly bring Paul's third missionary journey to a close, bringing he and his companions to the, the city of Tyre, far off to the right there. Last time we saw the city of Tyre was when Herod was eaten by worms. Anyone remember that episode? If you were around back in Acts chapter 12, Herod, having been struck down by the Lord for seeing, uh, seeking the worship that God alone is worthy to receive. And we're told in verse four, in the city of Tyre, having sought out the disciples, we, Luke's writing this book of the Bible, and so Luke is with Paul in this moment. He says, we stayed there for seven days. And through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. During a, a seven-day layover, Paul and his companions seek out their Christian brothers and sisters, we're told, in the city of Tyre, likely to encourage them, which Paul was known to do in various cities as he would go in and strengthen the churches that he helped to plant. But instead, in this moment, his brothers and sisters in the city of Tyre end up discouraging the apostle Paul, telling him not to go to Jerusalem, which brings up a, a little bit of a, a theological conundrum. What do, you, what do we make of the fact that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to the city of Jerusalem. I mean, does that imply that Paul was in sin for refusing to listen to them? If you go back a couple of chapters to Acts 19, verse 21, we're told that now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. A chapter later, in verse Verses 22 and 23 of Acts 20, we're told, and now behold, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So the Spirit's already testified to Paul that imprisonment and affliction await, and certainly the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself, which is 
why many scholars agree that the Spirit wasn't telling these disciples in the city of Tyre to inform Paul that he was not to go to Jerusalem, but rather the Spirit was telling them that Paul would suffer in Jerusalem, which caused them out of love for Paul to plead with him not to go. Which as you can imagine, must have been incredibly hard on the Apostle Paul, constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, yet feeling the weight of the sorrow that his friends were feeling at the thought of him suffering. You can just see the tears on their faces as they're pleading with him not to go. That moment of prayer on the beach together must have been an incredibly intense moment, much like Paul's experience with the Ephesian elders going back to last week in chapter 20. Similar to Jesus' sorrow and anguish intensifying in the days leading to his crucifixion, the emotions of the apostle Paul and his friends intensify all the more in the days leading to his suffering in Jerusalem, which we'll get to in just a moment. But verse seven, picking up where we left off, it says, when he had, we had finished the, the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this verse 12, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Let me bring the map up one last time. This is probably the last time you'll see the map in this series. As you can see, Paul is basically working his way down over here in the the far bottom right-hand corner for those that I'm not obstructing your view and can actually see it. He's working his way down the coast from, from Tyre to Jerusalem, stopping off at Ptolemaeus and Caesarea along the way. While in Caesarea, we're told that Paul stays with his buddy Philip. Philip was one of the seven appointed to distribute food to widows back in Acts chapter six, which was so long ago for those of us who have been around for this entire series, right? He was also the one who took the gospel to Samaria back in Acts chapter eight, not to mention the one who shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch on the desolate dirt road, if you recall that episode. You just imagine the war stories that Philip and Paul probably shared with each other that night, to be a fly on that wall. Can you imagine some of the crazy stories that they would have shared, maybe even stories that didn't make their way into the book of Acts? We're told that during the stay at Philip's house, Paul not only likely received confirmation of his impending suffering through Philip's prophesying daughters, but also through the prophetic words and visual depiction of Paul's suffering through the prophet Agabus which apparently was so intense that Luke himself ends up urging Paul not to go. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Even the author of Acts is hoping that Paul doesn't finish out the story of Acts. Is that not crazy? I'm sure that that only adds more weight to Paul's sorrow, which he's been carrying now for quite some time. Emotions continue to intensify until everything comes to a head in verse 13. It becomes too much for the apostle Paul. We're told that then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm reminded of the moment in Jesus's ministry. Maybe you recall this moment where 
Peter tried to rebuke Jesus for saying that he must suffer and, and be raised from the dead on the third day, which prompted Jesus to rebuke Peter, right? Saying, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The apostle Paul, in this moment, fast forwarding to Acts 21, constrained by the spirit to go to Jerusalem, regardless of the circumstantial outcome, to do otherwise would be to set his mind on the things of man, not the things of God. Paul loves his, his brothers and sisters in Christ, but he loves Christ more. And so verse 14 tells us, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. In this case, the will of the Lord, as we'll see, is the affliction of the apostle Paul for the name of the Lord Jesus, which we've talked about this before on numerous occasions in various series and books of the Bible, that this, what's happening here in Acts chapter 21 flies in the face of the notion that God's will and circumstantial happiness always go hand in hand. They don't, right? The, the notion that if one isn't circumstantially happy, one must be out of the will of God. I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Go and read Hebrews chapter 11. There are plenty, plenty of faith-filled saints who have suffered greatly following the pattern of their savior, Jesus Christ, who was in the perfect will of God, think about this, as he bled and died on a splintered wood cross. God's will is not always in line with what we want. Believe me, my will would be that the sun would be shining today. But as Tim Keller once said, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Think about that for a second. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. If you knew everything God knows, you would see the perfect sovereignty and wisdom of God in every aspect of his plan for your life. If you knew everything God knows, you would see the way that every difficulty in your life fits into God's plan for your conformity to his son, Jesus Christ. And that doesn't even take into account the beautiful truths of the gospel that Jesus is always with us when things are not circumstantially great and he's been there before us as the forerunner constrained by the spirit, we're told that Paul will not be deterred though imprisonment and affliction await him, which is why we're told in verse 15, after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. It's been roughly five years since Paul had visited Jerusalem last. A lot of stories have taken place in those five years that are worth telling. You, you can just picture this scene. Again, another cool scene to sit in on. Paul standing before the Jerusalem elders, telling them about the, the 12 disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus who had never heard of the Holy Spirit. And of Paul's two-year experience at the Hall of Tyrannus where he daily reasoned where, with anyone who would give him a hearing resulting in all of the residents of Asia hearing the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And of God using Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons to heal the sick and cast out demons, authenticating Paul's message of the gospel. 
and of the seven sons of Sceva who tried to use the Spirit's power in order to make a name for themselves and who ended up running out of a house naked and wounded. And of the Ephesian citywide bonfire in which a number of people practicing magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, setting fire to the sum total of 50,000 pieces of silver. And of the riot in Ephesus in the wake of Paul's confronting the idols of that city, the gospel transforming the entire economic, cultural, and religious landscape. And of the fall of Eutychus from a third-story window, followed by his miraculous resurrection going back to last week. Not to mention the collection that all of the churches in these Gentile regions had taken up so that Paul might bring financial support to Jerusalem in the wake of a famine that had taken place not long before to help out those brothers and sisters in time of need in hopes of not only caring for the Jerusalem church, but forging a, a sort of unity between Jew and Gentile believers, which makes what happens next all the more devastating. This is a weird turn in the book of Acts. We're told that upon hearing the report, the Jerusalem elders glorified God. That's great. How could you not glorify God in receiving a report from the mission field like that? Right? That would be a cool Sunday for anybody to gather. And yet, notice that the conversation takes a really strange turn, an incredibly abrupt one. The back part of verse 20 tells us, and they, the elders of Jerusalem, said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. There are a number of Jews here, Paul who are concerned that you've been telling Jews elsewhere to forsake the law of Moses, how are they gonna respond when they find out that you're here in the city of Jerusalem? It's a little spineless on the part of the leadership of the Jerusalem church, if you ask me, which has been slow throughout the unfolding story of Acts to embrace Gentile converts without suspicion. And it's based on a false rumor. Paul has no problem with Jewish believers voluntarily following certain mosaic customs so long as it's not motivated by a works-based righteousness, so long that it's not an adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul also has no problem with certain Jewish cultural practices which is evidenced by his speedy travels to the city of Jerusalem so that he can be there in time for the celebration of Pentecost. You can just imagine the pain that this must have caused the apostle Paul, similar to the pain Jesus experienced in Jerusalem in being misrepresented by the Jewish leaders and the angry crowd. Verse 23 tells us, do therefore, and this is the, the elders of the Jerusalem church speaking, do therefore what we tell you, Paul. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That's referring back to the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, that verdict that went out. The the Jerusalem elders here, in effect, command Paul, do what we tell you, command Paul to engage in a Nazarite vow along with four men who are undergoing that same vow, which seems to be a demonstration of church politics. 
Paul, do these things so that others will perceive you in a certain way so that the boat might not be rocked. By way of their bringing this whole thing up, the Jerusalem elders are communicating not only that the Jewish believers in the city don't trust Paul, they're communicating that they themselves have a trust issue with Paul. Notice that they're not getting Paul's back in this moment. And it's a really difficult request. It's like those moments from time to time that you see in the gospel accounts with Jesus and the Pharisees, and you're like, how is Jesus gonna wiggle his way out of this one? And the Pharisees present with two options and Jesus comes up with this third one and you're like, Jesus is so wise and I'm so foolish, right? It's similar to that. It's a difficult request. It's one that opens the door for criticism of the apostle Paul no matter what he does. By Jewish believers if he doesn't go through with it and by Gentile believers if he does. Talk about a difficult predicament so much so that some scholars argue that those who told Paul not to go to Jerusalem were in the right and that Paul was in the wrong, that he shouldn't have gone and gotten himself into this situation. Right, put yourself in Paul's shoes. What would you have done? We're told in verse 26, Paul's response says, then he took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. That Paul follows through with the request of the Jerusalem elders, which has created a massive stir among scholars. I wish I could just put you in my shoes over the course of the last couple of weeks in studying Acts chapter 21, reading commentary after commentary after commentary. Some arguing that Paul was able to fulfill this request without compromising the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That kind of... Um, missionary adaptability that we applaud the apostle Paul for at times, seeing his brilliance on the mission field, a laying down of his liberties for the sake of the gospel, loving the weaker Jewish brother. And, and, and maybe that's true. That's one way to interpret it. Other scholars argue that Paul was doing the very same thing that he rebuked the Galatians for doing, distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ, like Peter when he refused to eat with Gentile believers. Really hard to know what to do with this episode. Paul certainly loved the Jewish people. We're told in Romans 9 that he would have given up his own salvation if it meant that his people might be saved. We're told in Ephesians 2 that he desperately wanted unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. Again, his collection for the saints in Jerusalem, a, a way of not only providing for the church, but trying to establish camaraderie and unity between Jews and Gentiles within the, the Christian church. Did those desires lead Paul to a place of compromise? Really hard to say. Certainly sobering to think that the Apostle Paul could have veered off the gospel path of even but for just a moment. Makes me really grateful that there's only one in Scripture who we're called to defend as sinless, and his name is Jesus. Right, there's so many commentators that it was almost as if there was a desperation to defend the Apostle Paul, as if Christianity stands or falls on the shoulders of the Apostle Paul. And it doesn't, does it? It stands on Jesus Christ. Our salvation doesn't rest in the perfect sinless life of even the apostle Paul, but rather the perfect sinless life of the perfect sin-bearing savior, Jesus Christ, the one who lived the life that you and I could never live, the one who handled every pharisaical attempt to trip him up with perfect sinless wisdom, the one who died in the place of sinners, including even the apostle Paul. Jesus didn't just die 
for Paul's pharisaical ways prior to the Damascus Road experience. He died for the sins of the apostle Paul, past, present, and future. The, the Bible, let me say it this way, and I hope this encourages you as you leave this place. The Bible is big enough to handle the character flaws of even the giants on whose shoulders we stand because none of those people are the hero of scripture. Jesus is. And, and, and I think that speaks even to our evangelism. That thing that happens when we're afraid to mess up with our lives, with what we say, we certainly wanna do our good deeds so that people may glorify our, our Father who is in heaven. There's something about living in obedience in light of the gospel's work in our hearts, and there's something right about wanting to be as precise with our evangelism as we speak the gospel as we possibly can. But there's a, a difference between living in light of the gospel in obedience and seeking a perfectionism that takes away from the perfect Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you come in this morning, I would ask the question, is Jesus your savior and king? Or are you trusting in people or things that will inevitably fail you? Perhaps you're, even your own self-heroic righteousness to save you. Or maybe you've walked away from Christianity because a Christian failed you and you were resting your faith on the shoulders of that person rather than the perfect person, Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, if the Apostle Paul was capable of falling short of the glory of God, then so are we. Jesus is our only hope of right standing with God. And not only that, these verses are a really helpful reminder that we, we cannot cease to preach the gospel to ourselves and each other because it's so easy to veer functionally off the gospel path, be it trusting in people or things other than Christ for our identity or looking to pseudo saviors to rescue us from our personal hells, whatever those personal hells may be, or clinging to idols rather than the, the one true God who is worthy of worship. Regardless of whether or not the Apostle Paul was in the right, things quickly escalate here in chapter 21. If you pick it up in verse 27, we're told, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that is Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. In this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Similar to Jesus' experience in the city of Jerusalem toward the end of the gospel accounts, Paul is falsely accused of things that have zero evidence or merit, accused of having taken Trophimus, a Gentile, into an area of the, the temple forbidden to Gentiles based solely on the fact that Trophimus had been seen with Paul in the city, not the temple. It's a reminder we shouldn't be surprised to face hostility, perhaps even lies as we seek to live out our faith. To be sure, it will likely come in a very different form than what we see here in Acts chapter 21 perhaps a label of intolerant, maybe old-fashioned, maybe out of touch. Perhaps you've heard those kind of phrases from those that are closest to you, even family and friends. If we're seeking to please Jesus with our lives, persecution in some form or fashion will come our way. 
Crowd here in Jerusalem, incredibly overwhelming. Paul's fate seemingly sealed, except that verse 31 tells us, and as they were seeking to kill him, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, similar to the, the irrational idolatrous crowd in the theater of Ephesus. And we're told in verse 32, he at once took soldiers, the tribune did, and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And were it not for the quick response of the soldiers and centurions, Paul would have been executed on the spot, just like Stephen, going back to the earliest chapters of the book of Acts. Likely in the very same, think about this, likely in the very same location that Paul now finds himself, Pilate had asked the angry crowd, what shall we do with this Jesus? To which the same crowd that just days before had shouted Hosanna in the highest responded to Pilate, away with this man, crucify him. Similarly, where the Jewish people had once cried, great is Paul, Jew among Jews, greatest of Pharisees. They now cry, away with him, demanding his death. It's incredible. As we continue to, to trace out these last chapters of the book of Acts, it's incredible just how similar the experience of the apostle Paul was to the experience of Jesus. Both constrained by the spirit to journey to Jerusalem regardless of the circumstantial outcome. Both with strong responses to those who would seek to deter them, whose minds were set on the things of man both misrepresented by the Jewish leaders and the angry crowd, both falsely accused without evidence or merit. And yet, and yet, the apostle Paul couldn't be more different from Jesus. We have no certainty that Paul acted with integrity in this morning's passage, as even the most brilliant biblical scholars are at odds with how to interpret the apostle Paul's actions. But unlike Paul, we have certainty that Jesus acted with integrity as even those who called for and authorized his execution could find no fault in Jesus. He's the spotless lamb of God, the sinless one who died in the place of sinners like you and me. Because the sinless savior died, your sinful soul is counted free. I hear that this morning. It's not because the apostle Paul can be proved blameless in Acts 21 that your sinful soul is counted free. It's because the sinless savior Jesus died. He's the one we come to worship this morning. May your heart be filled with gratitude and joy this morning in knowing that unlike Paul, Jesus has not left scholars at odds with respect to his character and integrity. Even those who refuse to call him God say he was a really good teacher and philosopher and moral human being. If Jesus had had a momentary lapse in integrity, we'd all be dead in our sins. Praise be to God for the perfect, sinless integrity of our sin-bearing Savior. That's all I've had for you in terms of application this morning. That's it. There's no go do this or go do that. There's no six steps to a better this or a better that. It's marvel that Jesus lived the sinless life that you couldn't live. 
marvel at the perfect sinless integrity of your sin-bearing Savior for our sake. Paul says elsewhere, he made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 